Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Edward Chisholm didn't know how to wait tables or even speak French, but that did not stop him from getting a job as a waiter in Paris. Today, he provides a behind-the-scenes account of what goes on in a Parisian restaurant, including the most chaotic meal of all, Sunday brunch. It's a little bit like a storm brewing in the Atlantic. You know, it starts slowly with the orders firing down through the computers into the depths of the restaurant, and then slowly it builds and builds and builds and builds, and then eventually spills out of that swinging door and into the restaurant. I mean, it was never, ever a relaxing day, a Sunday. But before the Parisian Bistro, we're heading to the streets of Bangalore, India. Here, you might find a vendor selling a mysterious snack known as Buchakra Gade or Ram Khand Mool. What is your name? My name is Shyam Sundar Yadav. How did you get the idea of selling Kandamool? When I came to Bangalore, my mentor told me about this snack. He said if you are interested in selling it, you can do it. Then I started buying the stock, and I've been vending it ever since. What do you know about Kandamul? It's a root. It cools the body heat, prevents pimples, clears out kidney stones. This root is extracted once every 15 to 20 years. Uh, the supplier says he gets it from Andhra Pradesh, but where exactly in Andhra Pradesh, I don't know. 
Journalist Barka Komari spoke with Sham as part of her investigation into the true identity of this snack. Even though it's sold all across India, it seems that no one knows exactly what it is, where it comes from, or why vendors are so secretive about its origins. Right now, Barka joins us to share more from her investigation. Barka, welcome to Mill Street. Thank you so much, Chris. So we're talking about street vendors and a very particular snack that they serve. Now, where were you when you first saw it? I was in my city, which is Bangalore, in the southern state of Karnataka. I had just learned driving, and I was practicing how to drive on the roads when my partner, who was sitting next to me, he yelled and said, stop. And he just jumped out of the car. And then I saw there was this huge trunk that this vendor was preparing to cut into slices and give it to us. And he tells me, it's a root. So before we get into the mystery here, let's just describe. It's like three or four feet tall. It was huge. It was like a foot and a half in diameter, maybe. It was white flushed. And they slice, they use sort of a curved like machete to cut off thin slices. I mean, it's like, could this really be an in-ground root that's that large? I mean, it's It's huge. The thing's huge. I agree with you, and that is exactly why I was skeptical. So this guy tells me, the vendor tells me, that, you know, it comes from a climber, a vine. (laughs) And I'm saying that, you know, the basic science I know makes me disbelieve that this can be a root and this can be so huge for a climber. Well, trees, I mean, the thing that struck me is trees don't have roots that look like this, right? I mean, they, they don't go deep into the ground straight down. So first of all, I, I assume you, you bought some and tasted it. What did it taste like? Yes, of course. It takes on the taste of any seasoning you add to it. Hmm. So the one that I had had uh, salty and chili powder seasoning. But two months later, while I was still practicing my driving, I spotted another vendor. I jumped out of the car. I ran towards him. Brother, please stop. Brother, please stop. People around me on the street were looking at me. What has this brother done? Why am I going for him? And when I ate it that time, I told him, do not add any lime or salt or sugar. I want to eat it as is. And that day I realized, oh my God, it was obnoxious. It smelled like yogurt and I hate yogurt. Mm. But yes, it's very crispy, very juicy, very crunchy. So then you start this search to determine where it comes from, what it is botanically. But there's (laughs) this was a long, confused search that didn't necessarily fully resolve the issue. So one of the things in your piece I found interesting is that when you talk to the vendors, they weren't really going to help you very much, right? Not at all. It was a secret, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is a secret. And the funny thing is, uh, even before I was speaking to you, half an hour before, I called up one of the vendors again to try my luck. And he maintained the status quo, which is, I get it from another vendor. I have never seen the tree in person I only know that it is sold in the religious places. So there is a bit of a mythological story attached to this root, you know. So we have this Hindu mythology called Ramayana, where we have this lord called Rama. He was banished into a forest with his wife. And during the exile, they subsisted on this tuber, on this root. Hmm. 
So there's this consistent uh, storytelling across the length and breadth of the country. It's healthy, it's medicinal, it's religious, it's a route. Uh, we get it 200 kilometers from wherever we are. Nobody knows where they get it from, but it continues to be sold. You went down this rabbit hole full tilt. Uh, why did you get so interested in this? What was it about it that was so uh, mesmerizing for you? Not mesmerizing. I mean, the real word is I was frustrated. Mm. I feel so silly as a journalist. I've been a journalist for 11 years, and the only investigative story I've done in my life is on a street snack. But I am a person of scientific temper, and nobody was telling me facts. Everybody said, okay, we have seen it, but we don't know where it comes from. And I could not take that as an answer as a journalist. I called up lots of taxonomists, lots of botanists, and I was giving my phone number to random people on the street, shopkeepers, Mm. food vendors, cops. I was like, if you see anybody selling this snack on the road, just call me, just take my number. I mean, it's so interesting that something so big and so distinctive is shrouded in mystery, right? I'll tell you, uh, one of these botanists in Pondicherry, which is in the southern uh, part of India, you know, he has taken a vow, as I have taken a vow, to resolve the mystery around it. And uh, he is planning to do an all-India identification search of this plant. He has gone mad, Hmm. like I have. Some of the botanists uh, you spoke to have gotten close to identifying the plant Uh, You wrote that the strongest piece of scientific evidence came from a DNA sample in 2010. So what were the results of that test? What was it? So yes, in 2010, two students decided to run a DNA barcoding and they found 89% of it matched to that of an agave. What they were not able to conclude, which species that is, whether it's agave sicilana or it's agave americana. And they continue to tell me they cannot ascertain that until they see the plant in its natural habitat. And the Pondicherry scientist has given another dimension to this story. So many years ago, a taxonomy friend of his ventured into a forest in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, and he saw a bunch of vendors trying to cut an agave plant, he has documented it, not knowing that the entire world is trying to find out the mystery around it. They have figured out that it perhaps is agave cantalana, not even sicilana or americana. So now there is a third suspect. And this Pondicherry scientist is uh, very sweet. He has offered to grow agave cantalana in his university campus from scratch. And he's just going to wait for years and years and years until it flowers, then cut it down, and then perhaps conclude if it really is agave cantalana. But yes, it is agave. Okay, so now we know it's an agave plant of some kind. But if that's all it is, why is everyone keeping it such a mystery? Uh, I think you wrote in the article that perhaps agave can be poisonous if eaten in large quantities, So maybe they want to keep it a secret because it's poisonous. Uh, Is it illegal? Maybe they're not supposed to be harvesting it. You know, is there something else going on here? You know, they constantly kept on telling me that they're sourcing this plant from deep inside the forest. 
and then I decide to call up forest officials and ask them, you know, do we need permission to remove a tree or a trunk or any part of it from the forest? And they categorically told me yes. But there is a problem with this theory because agave literally grows everywhere in the country. So that is why the trespassing theory doesn't hold ground for me. Uh, the second thing, why they were so secretive, I think they know deep down that yes, eating it in large quantities could be poisonous. Uh, third thing is, I feel by maintaining the secrecy around it, they create this magic and aura around this plant. You know, things related to mythology uh, need not be answered. So it helps to create and keep this mystery going around it. Barka, it's uh, really been a pleasure. Uh, the mystery, I think, is nearly solved. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. That was journalist Barka Kumari. Her article for Gastro Obscura is the mysterious street snack that has baffled botanists for decades. Earlier, we heard from vendor Sham Sundar Yadev with translation from Sean Jane. If you have a lead on the identity of Buchakra Gade or another culinary mystery you want us to solve, we want to hear from you. Please call our tip line 617 249 3167. That's 617 617- Two four nine three one six seven. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll look at Paris through the eyes of a waiter. That's right after the break. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Edward Chisholm. When he moved from London to Paris in 2012, he found work as a food runner and then a waiter. He ended up staying in the restaurant industry for the next four years and wrote about the experience 
in his amazing memoir, A Waiter in Paris. Edward, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I just have to say, right at the outset, that your book, A Waiter in Paris, I just could not put it down uh, because the level of detail and the world in which you take us behind the scenes in a French restaurant is <laughs> it's like the seventh layer of hell. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you so much. Very kind of you. But um, yeah, it's funny. The the description of hell, I guess, is is quite useful because I I started to see actually the world behind the scenes as a, well, more of a purgatory, actually. The world yeah. of waiters is a bit of a purgatory. You moved to Paris with your girlfriend. You don't have a job. I think it was someone next to you in one of the cheap apartments you were renting. Mm-hmm. He brings you in and you get a job as a runner. You buy a suit that is the typical waiter, black suit, white shirt. You show up the next day. It, it, this is like the worst nightmare you have with a college exam you haven't prepared for. Yeah, it was awful. Right? So <laughs> you're standing there. I'm just going to quote. I have no idea what's on the menu, nor how to take orders, nor indeed if I should. I have no idea where the food comes from, how it's made, or even who makes it. I'm, this image of you with your new, shiny, cheap suit <laughs> yeah. standing there, you could not really understand what people were telling you. No. I mean, how did you get through the first day? Yeah, I mean, it was a mixture of things. You know, like a child learns by copying. I just watch what people were doing. And most of the time I get in their way because th- these these big Parisian restaurants or any big restaurant, they're, they're much a well-oiled machine. And fortunately, you know, one of the waiters took pity on me, I guess. I don't know why. And said, you know, you're a runner. It's quite simple. You run. You pick up dirty plates. You bring them back here. And then you just put these prepared plates on the table <laughs> number, I tell you. And at this point, I... I didn't want them to know I couldn't speak French because I was so desperate for the job. So let's describe the geography of the restaurant and the people who worked at the various stations. So starting with the dining room, there's a hierarchy to where you get seated. So let's start with that. Yeah. So how you are seated in the dining room is a reflection of how you're viewed by the hostesses. The closer to the center of the restaurant were the people who were either rich, famous or good looking. And if you had all three, you were sort of the holy grail. Uh, (laughs) Well, you had a long relationship with a woman who ran the front desk. And you said that she would look at people's shoes. Yes. But it wasn't the shoes. It's how they wore the shoes. So she had a very keen eye for style, which isn't necessarily the same thing as money. No, exactly. It was more of a, it was, yeah, it was a style. It was something you carried with you, a confidence almost, mm. which all of us can pull off usually, at least once. Then you spent a lot of time discussing the pass. Mm. You say this low-ceilinged six-square-meter purgatory is where all food and drink will pass. Yeah, so the pass was this kind of, small room where all the dolly lifts, the service lifts would um, be connected to and food would come there from the lower kitchen or the upper kitchen. And the people working in here were all Tamils. So they're all from Sri Lanka and they'd fled um, Sri Lanka because they'd been Tamil tigers, which basically became a, a guerrilla fighting group. So you know, they had these very hard men with stories that could, you know, regale you for hours and hours and hours, you know, plating up food and shouting at you and uh, making you coffees and stuff. Well, you say any runner or waiter worth his salt knows the smattering of Tamil. But she said also that these people shouting at the waiters are adept at hand-to-hand combat 
and know how to plan and execute a guerrilla attack on an armed convoy. Yeah. So you, these were tough guys. Yeah, right? these are tough guys. And, and that's actually a funny thing you mentioned, the, the Tamil, because, you know, when you're learning a language, I just assumed everyone was speaking French. And it was only after some weeks that I realized it wasn't just French that everyone was speaking, but hmm. Tamil and Portuguese and Russian and all sorts, especially for swear words. So there's a moment when in the past a bunch of plates crash to the ground and you write, new plates are taken and using our hands, we pick up from the floor what we can still make use of. <laughs> I'm just going like, uh, this is my worst nightmare. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the reality of what's happened on your plate before it's got to your table is probably better not knowing, I guess. You get one of these you know, a whole order that just collapses like an iceberg, you know, crashing into the floor and suddenly, well, either we're going to have to reorder everything and mess up all these other orders or the quickest thing to do would just, you know, steal a few haricot beans from some other plates and, you know, the service continues. Okay, so that's the pass. So the, the main kitchen's upstairs, right? That's in a different place. Yes. And this is the Corsican? This is the guy? This is, yeah. <laughs> so y- you wander up there. I'm not quite sure why, which you're not supposed to be there. There's yelling and shouting. And when he sees you, he tells you to get the blank out. You see, I stand there like an idiot with the plate yeah. outstretched. He charges me with a giant knife. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was. I don't know why I'm laughing. Because <laughs> no, this is the thing. So you, as a waiter, you're sort of put into these situations where you have no choice really. So that, that happened because, uh, you know, we'd served some, I think, a filet of beef or something to a, to a diner. And she was indignant and said, this is, this is not medium. Uh, and we were in such a stress and such a panic in the middle of a, in a, in a big service. I was like, well, the most efficient thing to do would be take it myself to the upper kitchen. I mean, that, that was a huge error. I've been, I've been warned many times. <laughs> I think I describe it in the book as a sort of forgery in a Roman outpost or something. It was just like, you know, this man screaming into a little interphone and people are whacking pieces of meat and the knives and stuff. It's quite impressive. Um, and then obviously the last thing he wants is some little English guy coming in <laughs> with, with a broken French saying that he hasn't cooked something incorrectly uh, and he did lose it i mean he, he held the knife very close to my to my face but uh yeah i never went back into the upper kitchen again suffice to say <laughs> one thing i never considered is you might have an hour off between say lunch and dinner service but you have no place to go i mean if, if you have money you can go sit at a tobacco or mm. a cafe or whatever but in the early days you you couldn't afford that so it was all about finding the best public restroom and the best hotel. Yeah, it was um, in summer. It's not so much a problem because you can lie down in the park or sit on a bench. But in winter, I didn't know what to do. I just had nowhere to go. I couldn't sit in, you know, restaurants and stuff. And so, yeah, the best thing I found was to find the five star hotels and then stroll through the lobby with purpose. Ideally, if I could pick up one of the international papers, because I wouldn't assume a waiter would be reading the Financial Times or something. I'd tuck that under my arm and make a beeline uh, for the toilets you know, in the depths of the hotel. And they would be the cleanest place in Paris. Uh, warm, marble, lots of expensive soaps and all these kind of things. And uh, yeah, I just used the newspaper as a sort of pillow and uh, sleep for half an hour or something. Uh, Sunday service or as we call it, brunch here. (laughs) You say it's not restaurant work, it's attrition, it's a storm. So why was Sunday service so hard? You just had to serve hundreds of covers quickly? Yeah, it's it's the thing where everybody in the city 
wakes up with the idea of going for brunch or Sunday lunch and they think they're the only person with this idea um, <laughs> and it's just it's so compressed it's so many people in such a period of time you know and it's a little bit like a storm brewing in the Atlantic before it hits the seaboard you know it starts slowly with the orders firing down through the computers into the depths of the restaurant and then slowly it builds and builds and builds and builds and then eventually spills out of that swinging door and into the restaurant I mean it was never ever a relaxing day a Sunday did you get good you probably did a reading people yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful profession for people watching. You're on the shoulders of people, essentially, whilst they're having quite intimate or private conversations. Dining out is kind of a ceremony, and you, you're part of that. You're sort of the priest of the ceremony, if you will. So you want to make sure you go unnoticed, except when they want. So what is it like being unseen, but you can hear everything that's going on? Yeah, so this, this this is weird on many different levels because, you know, going to a new city and then a new language and learning that language, you start to almost have another identity which isn't your own one. You sort of build a new French identity. So you're sort of anonymous on different levels and then you're in a waiter's suit and you go unremarked. And actually it's quite nice. It allows you to see the world a bit differently. This thing about being a waiter or runner, you have this black suit, you talk about you can recognize a waiter on the street. Something about the tired suit, the haunted look, the hurried yet fatigued walk, the worn shoes, the slick haircut, the thin frame. So the, you became a character actor almost in, in the world of French waiters. Yes, no, no, completely. And, and you know, going back to what I said earlier about appearances and stuff, so the same reason you don't want to know what's happening in, the, you know, in behind the scenes. Uh, it's the same with the waiter. You know, uniform means that we are all one form. So you, you kind of take off your identity, don't you, and put on that of the French waiter. And yes, so when I was around town afterwards, or when you finish a shift, you'd see these other people in their suits, which if you got a bit too close, you'd see the, the spilt or dried sauces on the lapels, because you probably only have one suit unless you've been doing it for many years. But, but there's a point you say where a lot of waiters start off going, oh, I'm going to be an actor, actress, or I'm going to write a book or whatever. And so they, it's a temporary job. But for most, it becomes a lifetime job, right? Yeah, I think in English it's nice because waiting tables and waiting for something is the same word. And a lot of these people, I think, started this hoping they would do something else, whether it was to be a sportsman or a writer or any of these things. And years slowly go past, don't they? And that dream starts to fade and some of them nurture it for a bit longer. But at some point, the reality catches up with them and they realize that waiting is what they'll do for the rest of their lives. You make a point that in France, you are what you studied. That is, you can't escape your past. You can't escape your definition. And everybody needs to be clearly defined. It's a, it's a very rigid caste system, right? Yeah, and, and, th and this is pretty much why I ended up waiting tables, because I, I had a degree from university. But because I hadn't gone and studied journalism, I couldn't do that job. So in, in French, the word is encadré, which also means to frame something. So it's like putting something in a, in, a, in a frame, like a picture frame. I think it's maybe changing a bit now in France, but this idea of transferable skills that we have in, in the US and the UK, if you, you know, if you can do one thing, you could probably apply those skills to something else. This doesn't exist in France. And so the longer you're a waiter, you realize in France, you can't do anything else. It's very hard to change. You said that the restaurant is a good cross-section of French society. What were some of the takeaways 
about French society in general that you got out of your experience? France is it's highly nuanced, it's highly complicated. And that's what I wanted to try and explore in the book is to get a sense of what is France or French identity or Parisian identity, you know, and even in terms of what we're eating, like what is French cuisine? Because when you're eating something in a French restaurant, it's probably been prepared by a guy from Senegal and plated by a guy from Sri Lanka and served to you by an English guy who doesn't speak French, etc., etc. So the service is still French, yet there's no one in that sort of chain of events that's French. Um, but then there's the tradition of the bistro, there's perhaps the recipe. So, you know, it's a wonderful amalgamation, a soup with many ingredients, essentially. And it's hard to put your finger on it. Edward, thank you. A Waiter in Paris, my favorite read of the year. Uh, And thanks so much for being here on Milk Street. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Edward Chisholm. His book is A Waiter in Paris, Adventures in the Dark Heart of the City. All of us have a fascination with behind-the-scenes tell-alls, whether it's Hollywood, Broadway, or a Parisian restaurant. We suspend our disbelief, but we're still hungry to know how the trick was done. The most compelling narratives are when the worst case is confirmed by first-hand experience. The food spilled on the floor is scraped onto fresh plates and served. The bathroom in the prep kitchen has no place to wash your hands. The greeter in the front of the house seats guests based on a private ranking system. So if you get the table near the kitchen, you probably deserve it. Much like the 1959 tell-all book, Hollywood Babylon, we revel at the lowbrow goings-on of the rich and famous. Rather than ruining the show, however, these tabloid stories make the fantasy even better. When chaos reigns backstage, it makes the grease paint and footlights appear that much brighter. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Moroccan beef, tomato, and chickpea stew. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. I've been to Morocco a few times over the years, and there are sort of the classic tagines and pastilla and those sorts of things. But harira is actually one of the most common dishes there, but one that I don't think people know much about. What is harira, and when you were there, how did you learn to make it? Yeah, you know, I was really, really thrilled by this recipe because at its heart, it's a beef stew. It's a tomato beef chickpea stew. And it has a lot of those familiar notes, but also it just puts it outside of familiar in a wonderful and kind of exciting sort of way. So I was in the Medina of Fez, which, you know, as you know, is this labyrinth of some 10,000 shops and stalls. It's very easy to get lost in, by the way. I did it multiple times. And one type of stall is a soup stall. And they are open from morning until night. And in the morning, they serve basara, which is a creamy pureed fava bean soup, you know, iterations of which you see across that region. But in the evenings, they switch over to Herrera, this wonderful and savory and ever so slightly sweet from the tomatoes, beef, chickpea, tomato soup, often has some spice to it, usually from harissa or chilies. And I encountered this one stall run by this guy, Adil Borachdi, and he works with his mother, who spends all day making the soup, and then he carts it to his stall, three huge stainless steel tankards of it, every evening, and sells it, and he just, like, he owns the corner of the Medina. 
he is the cheers of the Fez Medina. Everybody comes, <laughs> he knows their names, they sit down, they have a bowl of soup, a hunk of bread, a piece of honey cake, and it's just this wonderful ambiance. So I ate it. It was delicious. It was so wonderful. And I begged him to take me to his mother's house so that she could teach us the recipe. And she was very sweet, but said no. Really? <laughs> yes. There were many Herrera stalls in the Medina in Fez, and she didn't want to give away her secrets. <laughs> so I guess once in a while, <laughs> someone says no. And this was one of those times. So I found another home cook, Ahuda Medi, who makes her own Herrera. And she did welcome me in and offer to teach me her recipe. As often as she makes it with beef, she does it with chicken or lamb. She made it with beef for me that day. And it's such a simple soup. It's red onion, olive oil, turmeric, celery, cilantro, chickpeas, and beef. She pressure cooks it, but you don't need to. And it just blends together, and it just creates this wonderful, again, very familiar, and yet, once you add the spice, you know, the combination of turmeric and harissa, the spicy chili paste, that takes that familiar beef stew that we know and just pushes it over in such a wonderful way. And then she had a great trick, which we have adapted to our own recipe that I just loved. Oftentimes, Herrera is thickened with a traditional roux of flour and fat. She doesn't like to do that because she feels it makes the soup heavy. And so instead, along with all the other ingredients, she cooks some potatoes and a couple of carrots and some veggies. And she scoops those out at the end of cooking and purees them and then adds it back. And it's a wonderful technique because it does thicken the stew, but it also sweetens it, but it keeps the flavors clean and light. You know, you don't get that kind of heft that you would get from a roux. And it's just wonderful effect. It was just a delicious recipe. I think I need to write a cookbook called Chicken Soup and Beef Stew, because you can go to almost any country and they'll have one or both of those. Absolutely, yeah. And how they treat it is so interesting, because it tells you so much about the culture. JM, thank you. A Moroccan beef, tomato, and chickpea stew, Herrera. Very similar in many ways to what we have done here in North America, but so much more interesting. Thank you. Thank you. You can find this recipe from Moroccan beef, tomato, and chickpea stew at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik gets in a pickle. That's up in just a moment. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to 
Radio tips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, before we take a call, I have a question. You know, a lot of families around the holidays have a breakfast thing, especially on something like Christmas. Do you have a special breakfast, or is it like just coffee and we absolutely, we absolutely do, and I'm looking at my dad in heaven because it was his thing, which is scrambled eggs low and slow. My dad only cooked two things, that and fish chowder. <laughs> but Strange he, combo. But he, low and slow, he'd do it in a cast iron skillet. He'd use that old-fashioned thing that you turned. What are those called? Egg beaters. And uh, he was known for that, but what we also added to it was my brother-in-law makes the Jordan Pond popovers. And those are so good. What's Jordan Pond popovers? You know, Jordan Pond that's on Acadia National Park. Jordan Pond is there, and they have the most amazing popovers on the planet. You have to make the batter the night before. But they're amazing. So that's what we have. And then bacon and Canadian bacon, because you can't just have one bacon. How about you? I usually do waffles or pancakes. Well, you're a pancake king, really. We do waffles on Saturday, pancakes on Sunday, every weekend. Or for a special occasion, why not? Or both. Yeah, there you go. Either or on the holidays. Yeah, wow. Okay, time for a call. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Emma from Napa, California. Hi, Emma, from one of the prettiest places in this country. How can we help you in the culinary department today? I'm a nearly lifelong vegetarian and a passionate home cook, and I'm pretty confident in the kitchen. But I like to keep my menus exciting year after year for the holidays. And I certainly have, you know, the seasonal veggie sides that I love making. But where I seem to be coming up short is in the creation of a signature meat-free main dish. So in past years, I've sort of tried it all. I did a vegan cassoulet with braised fennel and white beans one year. I did a lentil and veggie shepherd's pie one year. And they were really good and well-received. But not particularly show-stopping. I'm curious what your initial thoughts for an inspiring holiday meat-free main dish might be. Okay, so a couple of questions. Are eggs and cheese okay? And the yeah. other thing, when you say show-stopping, you mean it looks like woo-woo. Yeah, you know, like I just think that at the holidays, they're, you know, the center of the table tends to be a bird or a pot roast or ham. I like the idea of even a meat eater being very wowed by whatever the centerpiece thing is. Have you ever made an egg roulade? I have not. You'd make it in a jelly roll pan, and it's like, um, you know, a very, very thin egg cake. It's just mainly egg, and there's a tiny bit of flour in there, and you make it and bake it, and then you can actually make it, bake it, and freeze it. And then what you do, like a jelly roll cake, is you fill it with whatever you want and roll it up. You could say it's almost like the bouche de Noël, but a savory version. You know, this huge, like, rolled-up thing, or a couple of them you could do in the middle of the table, and you could fill them with whatever you wanted in the way of vegetables. 
And that is pretty attractive looking. You could put some cheese on top and run it under the broiler. Right. And you can make it ahead. So this is actually the perfect segue because a friend just recently brought up the idea of making a timpano, which is a really interesting thing. (laughs) So I love that idea about the roulade, but I wonder about now my brain's on timpano. (laughs) Well, you know, you're a brave woman because that is not easy to make. You could certainly do a timpano. Another thought I had was moussaka, but in place of the ground lamb, lentils. So layered eggplant and bechamel on top and then lentils in the middle. And that's sort of an adaptation of a hearty dish, but using beans instead. Another thing we used to do at Gourmet that I sort of took off with is inside-out eggplant parmesan rolls. So you Mm -hmm. slice the eggplant lengthwise, you season it, you bake it till it's tender so you don't have to use all that oil that you usually use. And then you make little croutons. And so that's the inside-out part. And so you stuff the eggplant with the croutons and some Parmesan and some mozzarella and roll it up and then top it with garlicky marinara sauce and bake it. And it's pretty nice looking. One of the things I've done is giant stuffed mushrooms using portobellos. That makes a statement. Another one is doing a crostata, you know, a free-form pie where the crust is on the outside, not on top. I did one with rustic greens and mashed potato. But you could put anything again that you want, and it's big and it's round, and you fold in the edges so it looks really pretty. All right, but now I know, Chris, of course there's butternut squash lasagna. Okay, I had to throw that in there. Anyway, Chris, I know you have some ideas. I fortunately, a couple years ago, traveled to the Middle East, and I spent some time with a Palestinian family, and they make makluba or makloube, M-A-Q-L-U-B-E-H, but it's spelled 10 different ways. It's a large pot that's essentially rice with vegetables. You could also add lamb or meat, but you don't have to. Sometimes they stuff the vegetables Uh before they put them in. But what they do is take the pot and they turn it upside down onto a huge, they have these huge silver platters. And it's Uh very dramatic. Just before serving, you unmold it. And then they take a spoon or a couple spoons and they open it up and you see what's inside. It makes a terrific centerpiece and you don't have to use meat. Uh, You can use any vegetable you want. If you wanted a real showpiece, that would be it. That's definitely what I would do. So what's holding it together? When you turn it out onto a plate, what's the binder? The rice has starch in it, right? So the rice helps to bind it together. So it will, if you do it carefully, you put the serving platter on top of the pot, take pot holders, flip it over, And gently, this is kind of the dramatic moment, release the pot and pull it up. And it will stay intact because the rice obviously has starch. But what's really cool is then you open it up and you see all the treasures inside, whatever you want to put inside. So it can be as glamorous as you like. But it's the unmolding that's fun and the presentation's terrific. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I love these ideas. And that does sound much easier than the timpano, which I think the main thing about the timpano that I was interested in was that presentation of being able to cut into something and seeing layers. Yeah, there's. I've done done an easy version of that dish. I used to do it all the time a long time ago. It's pretty cool. And you can do it with a simple sort of sour cream pastry around it. If you do a simplified one, that's a good choice too. Right, right. Yeah, and I love the idea of a crostata too. Yeah, crostata is good. Thank you. Okay, Okay. give that a shot. Let us know. We're rooting for you, Emma. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to solve your toughest kitchen questions. Just give us a call anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 
426-9843 or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm calling from Maryville, Tennessee. How can we help you? Well, every year in September and October, we like to pick muscadine grapes, and most years we'll get a few gallons. This year with the drought, we didn't have quite as much, but I'm wondering what I can do with my muscadines. Uh, well, first of all, what volume are we talking? I have about a half a gallon, and just to give you an idea of some things that I've tried in the past, I have juice, so I've made some different drinks like shrubs or cocktails with the juice. I've made sorbet. I've made ice cream. My mother-in-law has made jam. We have a friend who has made wine, so we've tried a lot of different things in the past, and I'm just looking for a new idea. I was kind of thinking vinegar. Yes, you can make vinegar. The easiest way to make vinegar is to start with vinegar and then use uh, like a Bragg's unfiltered vinegar, cider vinegar, and then wine. I did that myself, and you just keep adding wine to it and to the crock, and you make vinegar after a couple of months. I think if you're using a fruit to start, you're going to need to add alcohol to it. So it's not just vinegar. Mm -hmm. You need water, some sugar, and some grain alcohol to it, but you could certainly do that. But the problem with that is you're not going to use up a lot of the grapes. You know, you might use a few cups of them. I mean, how much vinegar can you use? So it would be something you could do, but it's also easier just to take wine and Bragg's cider vinegar and throw those together. Jelly, I assume that's the sort of obvious thing. My mother-in-law typically does yeah. jelly. Yeah, but yes. then again, how much jelly can you make? Yeah. Sarah, anything else? Yeah, I was thinking, you know, I'm always thinking about how can you reduce it in volume and get it into the freezer. And you already said you use it in shrubs, which means that you juice it. Yes. And then do you reduce that liquid or just add some um, that liquid to some seltzer or some other ingredients? Right. So typically we just get the liquid and then add that to when I made shrubs, I've added vinegar to it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll mix it with some other mixer. Right. By the way, we should mention that muscadine is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. That they have thick uh, skins and big seeds. So that's, you know, that's right. That's a little bit of a problem in terms of processing. But if you juice it, you could also simmer that juice down to make a bit of a syrup. And then you could freeze that. I don't know how sweet muscadines are, but. You could add sugar or not add sugar or add a little bit of lemon juice and sugar to balance it and then reduce it down and freeze it. And then you could use it in desserts, like just over mm -hmm. ice cream or over fresh berries in the springtime. Let's say you make a cake that needs a little bit of moisture. You could drizzle it on top of that cake. Can we ask a question, first of all? Do you like muscadine grapes? <laughs> I mean, is this because you have them and you don't want to just not use them, or do you actually really like them? Well, definitely I don't want to waste them, but we do like to eat them. The problem with eating them, though, like you pointed out, right. is the skin That's is tough. so thick, and then the seeds are just, yeah, not easy to deal with. Reducing it down to a syrup makes sense. So maybe you should try it and see over the winter whether you use the syrup and... The other thing you could do with the syrup is freeze it in ice cube trays and pop them out and put them in, you know, freezer bags. Yeah, right? I definitely thought that, she should That's another way to, freeze it. to use it. Yeah, I like the idea of the syrup. I might just forget that I had them. <laughs> How about that? 
I don't know. This is just a fun project. But it's guilt. I mean, we're dealing we're dealing with primal fruit guilt here. Well, at any rate, vinegar. But syrup. yeah, you, you, you do the vinegar, and that's probably of all the things I suggested. But that's not going to use up a lot of grapes. Would you heat the vinegar? I found some recipes using, like you said, grain alcohol, sugar, and then the recipe says to heat it after you have let it do its thing for a couple of months. Before you bottle it, you do. But I think okay. it, when you're making it while it's fermenting, et cetera, no. And making your own vinegar is great because it's so much better than the garbage you buy in the supermarket. Well, hey, listen, think of it as gifts for the holidays. <laughs> vinegar is a good gift. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it's so unusual. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. We finally arrived at. Whew. Okay. We're all there. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thanks for calling. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's check in with our resident philosopher, Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you? You sound upbeat, cheerful. I am upbeat and cheerful. I have got the ruins of a recently devoured lunch spread out on my writing desk before me. And I realized that they include a just-finished bottle of kombucha and a a bit of um, Korean kimchi. And it got me to think about what is, I think you probably agree with me, the single biggest new fashion in food over the last 10 years, which is, of course, the rage for the fermented and the pickled. Yeah, it's a classic case of something done to preserve foods for practical reasons that have now become cultural highlights. Right. We're bombarded by everything from fermented lamb to pickled rutabagas and pickled cauliflower. And I've been trying to figure out what is it about the fermented and the pickled that appeals to us so much right now? Well, I think it's a merger. It's a cultural merger with the underlying driving force in food, which is health. So I, I think it's it's fashion and health that coming together. I, I think that's true. Now, exactly what I was going to say is, on the surface at least, all anybody talks about is health. It's your gut, right? The reason we want to eat pickled and fermented foods is because they're filled with all this healthy probiotic chlazerai, as we say in Yiddish, <laughs> that will make you suddenly healthy. I'm always a little suspicious of health explanations of food fashions yeah, because if you remember – Every food fashion since the invention of the restaurant has always been about promoting your health. And it can be something that looks to us now like it was it was the worst possible uh, <laughs> idea, like the all-butter diet that the French advocated. You remember, the restaurant itself takes its name from the restaurant, the restorative, the healthy bouillon right. that Monsieur Chantoiseau was selling. So I'm always a little skeptical. I'm always extremely skeptical of health explanations. And I'm always very susceptible to... Explanations that begin with the oscillations of fashion. After all, one reason that classically hemlines go up is because previously hemlines had been down. There's a natural push and pull, a tug back and forth within any fashion. The love of fermented is exactly in opposition to the previous food vogue or food craze, and that was what? The seasonal, right? We're not ever again going to eat a tomato in December because it's unhealthy in itself, and it's unnatural in some way for food to be shipped coast to coast. And if you think about it, pickling and fermenting are the classic deep-seated human ways of stopping the seasons. Yeah, I I would say one other thing, though, in favor Mm -hmm. of fermented foods is that soy sauce, fish sauce, kimchi, et cetera, et cetera, all these things are preserved pantry ingredients that have massive flavor. So it allows you to cook any season, 
starting with a massive flavor boost. And I, I think that is actually a good thing. But you're absolutely right. It also, almost as a byproduct, packs an enormous amount of flavor. And it packs a yeah. specific kind of flavor, I think, Chris. Sourness, right? And, and umami, yeah. And umami. It's a sourness yeah. and umami, which have been previously sort of more marginalized on our palates, right? When we emphasize the seasonal, we're usually not emphasizing the sour. One of the ways that we detect the health of the seasonal on our on our tongues is exactly that the fruit for once actually tastes sweet. Right. And it's also, it seems to me, it's a way of subtly or even unconsciously, if you like, rejecting the dogmas of time, of season. It is a way of getting ourselves deeper engaged in place. We're able to enjoy the foods of places, Scandinavia and the Nordic countries, uh, most ostentatiously, that have become uh, temples of cuisine exactly through being uh, temples of pickles. What's really interesting is is that pickling. I was in Istanbul not too long ago, and they have pickle shops that sell nothing but pickles. I mean, hundreds of choices, and they have these huge, like five gallon glass containers of pickle juice, mm-hmm. and you drink pickle juice as a restorative. Uh. So, so I think we are starting in that direction. Coming soon near you, there Winneth, will be Winneth a pickle show. We'll be drinking yes. pickle juice. Yes, in uh, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. If, if there's one other element, I think, and you know, whenever we're studying what it is that makes a fashionable thing fashionable, it's usually multi-layered. Here's the other thing: it involves our engagement with benign bacteria. That's exactly what goes on. Whether it's hmm. sourdough bread, it's the same thing, right? We live in a, in a globe on a planet right now that is in a state of constant panic about microbes of all kinds, right? We hmm. live within panic about viruses. And recognizing that the world of the microbe includes all of this benign bacteria that we literally, Chris, can't wash off our hands, that has some deep organic uh, mystery about it that touches the edge of mysticism. All food, after all, all cooking is about articulating a relationship to nature. We can try to overcome nature, as in classic French cuisine, by uh, manipulating it so radically that we almost no longer can recognize it, or we can try showing our respect for nature by leaving it raw. In this case, I think we're trying to articulate a relationship to nature in which we recognize that the world is filled with invisible particles, but these particular invisible particles are the benign bacteria of our lunchtime pleasure. (laughs) It's so interesting that that you take something as simple as pickle and find a deep philosophical river in it. And and I will just end with the notion that maybe people like pickles – because it's flavor in a jar. It's convenient. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Let me end then with a story that's, that's <laughs> ethnic but true. At Schwartz's Delicatessen in Montreal, uh, there's a famous thing when the lady said to the uh, waiter, don't you have any vegetables here? And the waiter said, what, by you a pickle isn't a vegetable, lady? <laughs> Adam, thank you very much. That was an ode to a pickle. <laughs> it was indeed, and a pickle is ode. <laughs> That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177MilkStreet.com. 
There you can download our recipes, check out our membership options, watch our TV shows, and learn about our latest cookbook, which is Cook What You Have. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.